Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 111. 111. In cricket, that number is known as Nelson. It's unlucky for the batting side and players are expected to stand on one leg as the bowler launches his ball. It's perhaps symbolic that we get to episode 111 at precisely the moment that the South Africans agreed to peace after 23 years of fighting over South West Africa. Within a few months, the country will officially be known as Namibia, and soon all SADF troops will have been withdrawn. I was working as a journalist, starting in 1987, and had the honour to attend the tripartite signing ceremony in Brazzaville in the Congo, an experience that was strange, weird, otherworldly. The Cubans, South Africans and Angolans signed the accord observed by the Americans and the Russians. Afterwards, everyone drank vodka and mampur. The Russians brought the vodka and threw away the bottle caps. The South Africans brought the mampur and did the same. Chester Crocker had managed the impossible, but as he told people afterwards, the Cubans and the South Africans were like two scorpions in a bottle, both sides circling each other, but not prepared to strike the killer blow. More about this piece in a moment, but first the fallout from the terrible MiG-23 attack on Kalkwe Dam that killed 11 Aitsai troops on the 27th of June 1988. We ended last episode hearing how the MiGs had easily overcome the South African anti-aircraft defences and damaged the Kalkwe Dam, hitting it with six 250-kilogram bombs. As the recriminations and finger-pointing followed the blowing up of the buffle near the dam that led to the deaths of so many young South Africans, Commandant Mike Muller of 61 Mech had a challenge. His tanks and rattles were stuck on the north side of the Kineni River. The earth ramp that had been built up to the dam wall to allow the tanks to cross had been destroyed. Muller's combat team Charlie was stuck on the north side with the Cubans showing signs of upping the ante. The dam bombing by the MiGs had changed Muller's mind. He originally wanted the tanks to form a tight lager 10 kilometres north of Kalkwe, but they'd be sitting ducks with the Cuban pilots showing how good they were and in control of the air war. Their SAM-6s were also quite capable of taking out the Impalas and Mirages, so Muller decided it would be better for the tanks to retreat and head 40 kilometres to the west towards another bridge at Swavik. The Cubans were quite aware of this and were sending their own tanks towards the bridge to cut off the South Africans. The Rattles were deployed along with the mechanised infantry to watch the Cuban Central Brigades Muller moved the artillery west to protect the tanks, which were now exposed, and a short, sharp exchange was reported where eight Cuban vehicles of different sorts were hit by a South African G5 barrage. Shortly after the bombardment, Muller pulled the G5s out of southern Angola across a low-level bridge near Kalkwedam that could withstand their weight. If you remember, this bridge was not strong enough to take the weight of an Ulifant tank. It was under cover of darkness that the SADF pulled their critical resources out of Angola, and during the same night, the Rattles and other vehicles were also moved into southwest Africa. Muller stayed behind in Angola with the Ulufans as the tanks began to trundle westwards towards Fabik, using a dirt mountain track with one motorized infantry company and a mortar group for protection. The Cubans didn't fly at night, so this was the moment for their escape. Later, Muller was to say that the Cubans had missed a trick by not bombing Svarbeck as well, but it appears they were sending the South Africans in that direction because something very significant was going on behind the scenes. Peace talks. None of the officers on the South African side knew that this was going on. Top brass had kept them out of the loop. It was a need-to-know basis. Once the tanks crossed the bridge without incident, they swung eastwards to take up positions south of the Kalkwe Dam, 
while 2-5 Field Engineer Squadron rebuilt the earth ramp blasted by the MiG-23s. But just before midnight on Monday, June 27, 1988, Muller was ordered to withdraw all his forces from Angola. Commandant Jan Hochart was also ordered to pull all his 3-2 battalion units back to southwest. I was told in no uncertain terms that from that night onwards, not a toe was to be put across the border into Angola, said Hochart. That was a surprise. Suddenly, it was over. This 23-year war that had started in Ovambaland ended with the announcement that a peace agreement had been signed. Sixteen days later, on an island in New York Harbor, South Africa, Angola, Cuba, all agreed to the terms of peace, with both the Cubans and the South Africans withdrawing the troops from the region as a main clause. Havana and Luanda had hoped during 1988 that the Americans would vote Michael Dukakis and the Democrats into power, which would mean the end of support for UNITA and a harder line on South Africa. Instead, George W. Bush Sr. became president, which persuaded the Angolan and Cubans to be more flexible. Three days after the U.S. election results were released in November 1988, the parties reconvened in Geneva, and within a week they had agreed to a phased Cuban withdrawal over the course of 27 months. In exchange, South Africa pledged that South West Africa would be independent by the 1st of November 1989. On the 13th of December 88, South Africa, Angola and Cuba signed the Brazzaville Protocol, which affirmed their commitment to these conditions, and they set up a Joint Military Monitoring Commission, JMMC, to supervise the disengagement in Angola. This would also include Soviet and U.S. observers, and all hostilities would cease on the 1st of April 1989. On the 22nd of December, the Brazzaville Protocol was enshrined in the Tripartite Accord, which required the SADF to withdraw from Angola and reduce its troop levels in southwest Africa to just 1,500 within three months. Simultaneously, all Cuban brigades would have to be withdrawn from the border to an area north of the 15th parallel. Then 3,000 Cuban military personnel would leave Angola by April 1989. An additional condition was that South Africa would cease all support for UNITA and Angola would cease all support for Swapo Armed Movement Plan as well as the ANC's MK and they had to leave Angola. Everything was sealed on the 22nd of December 1988 when South African Foreign Minister Pak Buta Angolan Foreign Minister Alfonso van Dunham and Cuban Foreign Minister Isidore Malmercia Pioli signed the Trilateral New York Accords, which would change everything. Without resorting to too much grandiose puffle, I was part of the signing reporting on the entire affair as a journalist. The media corps was flown to Brazzaville in the Republic of the Congo on board a Safair flight in December. We were ushered into President Sasangueso's royal palace. This is not to confuse it with the Democratic Republic of the Congo, its southern neighbour across the Congo River. In those days, the DRC was called Zaire. You could understand a rather surreal moment. There, across the hallway, were the Cubans, the Angolans, the Russians, our enemy. The people I had fought against as a soldier during Operation Pratia in 1981, seven years earlier, standing alongside the South Africans and Chester Crocker. Afterwards, the media were ushered back to the waiting plane, sitting on the apron in broiling heat, as the South Africans, we were told, and the Russians drank copious amounts of their vodka and mampur. Apparently, Pukbote had taken a whole case on board, and the Russians had opened their vodka bottles and thrown away the tops, saying that meant the bottles had to be finished. With the Americans and Cubans looking on somewhat bemused, the Russians and South Africans spent two hours polishing off the bottles. 
Then the Pretoria delegation, led by Pickbutter, staggered back onto the plane where the media were quietly broiling in the humid equatorial air. On the flight back that night, Pickbutter began to crank jokes as the aircraft flew over Lusaka. He took control of the cabin crew public address system and, obviously drunk, suggested a possible bombing raid was now going to be carried out on the ANC, who were at that stage in exile and based in the Zambian capital. More bad jokes followed, but I will spare you the details. And so, Southwest Africa was on its way to becoming Namibia. And the SADF was on its way home. So were the Cubans. The last South African troops left Namibia in November 1989, and the country formally became independent in March 1990 after UN-supervised multi-party elections. The last Cuban left Angola on the 1st of July 1991. Next episode, I'll provide more details about what happened in this run-up, including the role played by the United Nations Transition Assistance Group, or UNTAG. But in the meantime, let's go over some analysis. Between 1987 and the end of fighting in 1988, the Cubans and FAPLA lost 94 tanks, 100 armoured vehicles, nearly 400 other vehicles, close to 5,000 soldiers, along with 15 missile systems destroyed, 9 MiGs lost, and 9 helicopters. The South Africans lost 3 tanks, 11 armoured vehicles, no logistic vehicles, 31 men were killed, along with 2 fighter aircraft lost, but no helicopters. While some have suggested that in pure data terms, the South Africans must have won this war, the win is in inverted commas. As I've explained, only the bureaucrats who counted beans back in Pretoria used this kind of logic to make themselves feel better. The Angolans and Cubans had money to burn. They had hundreds of tanks, tens of thousands of troops. The South Africans had two dozen tanks and could not spare to lose one man. What about the entire war? By the standards of warfare, both sides did not suffer the kind of casualties seen in many other wars, where over 25% casualty rates were recorded at times by battalions, regiments and sometimes even armies. It's generally agreed that 2,284 South Africans died in the 23-year war, compared to 11,335 Swapo and FAPLA troops, along with 5,000 Cuban soldiers and at least 3,000 civilians, perhaps more. The latter number will never be known, with so many caught in the clashes over such a long period, isolated in the villages scattered about Angola. Folks, there's a huge debate about these numbers, but as I've said, the important thing is not to fixate about the data, because we'll never have closure on that. The SATF could not countenance any casualties, whereas the Angolans relied on taking casualties. It wasn't a political train smash for Luanda, which was a one-party state, and crushed all independent journalism. They just lied more about the losses than the South Africans could, but both sides lied. Pick Boerter had told a gathered group of peace accord signatories in New York that the South Africans were thinking twice about allowing hundreds of their sons to be killed as the Cuban aggression grew. The citizens of both countries suffered through these lies just in different ways. 1989 and the Cold War had blown over, along with the Hot War. The African National Congress funders, the Russians, were broke. Cuba's president, Fidel Castro, had given up on his worldwide revolution fervor, realizing that his backers, Moscow, had failed in the contorted communist experiment. The Berlin Wall crashed down in 1989. Eastern European countries were freeing themselves from the Russian occupation, rejecting a system that had oppressed and destroyed, and equally in southern Africa, the apartheid regime was doomed. It had also oppressed and destroyed. 
Moscow had been pumping around $10 million a day into Cuba's economy, an ideological subsidy, but Mikhail Gorbachev turned off the cash flow. By the end of 1989, Cuba was down to just a weak supply of petrol. Hungary stopped supplying spare parts to Cuba, which used their buses. And in a bizarre about turn, Cuba then turned to Pretoria in 1991 for assistance, asking for the National Party, the former enemy, to help source bus spares. Cuba still turns to Pretoria for assistance, by the by. The ANC government imports doctors from Havana, preferring them to hiring their own doctors because of Cuba's military support for their struggle against Pretoria. The ANC continues to cough up millions of dollars in donations to Cuba, which is once again on its last legs, but prefers to remain a one-party state where there is no freedom. But I digress. Back to 1988-95, to a period of global change. Someone has to win a war, you know. So the post-1988 peace accord signing led to a flood of deranged propaganda pretty much from all parties. Fidel Castro crowed about the Angolans with their Cuban allies, along with Swapo, defeating the South Africans. This is not how SADF generals and the troopies saw it. Crocker had pointed out that both sides had fought each other to the moment where, like scorpions, they circled each other. A full-scale invasion of Namibia by the Cubans would have been exceedingly bloody. It was something that Castro was not willing to entertain, nor something that the National Party political leadership in South Africa relished either. They had been fighting the ANC's MK and the PAC's APLA in a non-conventional war back home, which was low intensity but a war nonetheless. And it was one they had begun to realise they could lose. So the National Party had taken to launching death squads and poison attacks, giving up completely on the idea of being seen as a civilised state. The political ideology that had fuelled both sides was broken. Communism was done, so was apartheid. Naturally, Fidel Castro gloated. Thousands of his men had paid the price, so he had to provide some sort of victory parade for the masses in Havana. Naturally, too, the South Africans had thrown thousands of their men into Angola, and over 2,200 were dead, so they needed to claim an ethical victory, if nothing else. But for both sides, it was a pyrrhic victory, because the families of these men asked, for what did their loved ones die? It is an ancient question that dogs us. You cannot squirm from it. So in 1989, UNITA still controlled southeastern Angola, and continued fighting the MPLA, just without direct South African backing. Much of the noise about who won what and where concerned the Battle of Quito Guanavali. This single battle has seemed to fixate everyone because of its overtones of earlier wars and battles, the tanks, the armoured vehicles, the trenches, the artillery bombardments, the massed attacks on fixed positions, the strategic importance of one town. The narrative broadcast in South South Africa was that Quito Guanavali was never a target so therefore the SADF was not beaten, despite never seizing that town. The Cuban narrative hinged on their belief that the SADF would have liked to have taken the town if they wanted to. And furthermore, the South Africans had failed to secure the region, the territory, east of the Quito River. UNITA said the MPLA was defeated at Quito Quanavali because the Angolan state, with all its Russian, East German and Cuban backers, had failed in their large-scale October 1987 assaults targeting Mavinga and UNITA HQ at Jamba. Neither had fallen. So looking at all of this is rather confusing, and to be blunt, a tad tasteless. Like political hyenas, these people were all boasting about winning. As if claiming a win was somehow going to make up for the cold bodies buried in the soil of Angola or back in South Africa. 
It was a great war, they would say, fought for great things like victories and chaps, wonderful medals to wear with your well-pressed step-outs when you next gathered together. But as soldiers, it irked us, did it not? What was the reason that our brothers and some of our sisters, on whatever side you supported, were blasted to shreds? Pretoria had kept their stiff upper lip technique when it came to what was going on in southern Angola for so long that when the end came in 1988, it was a shock for their die-hard supporters and for the SADF officers, which had contained a real threat from Angola and Cuba for many years. For the professionals who had fought well despite overwhelming odds, the sudden peace appeared to be a stab in the back. Remember that the first thing to suffer in war is the truth. Bias and conjecture aside, here are a few things we perhaps could consider. Starting with the Cubans. After the grand hubris-filled speeches by Castro had died down, he said that all Havana was really trying to do was to be strong enough on the ground to avoid defeat. They had to get into Quito Quanavali to support Angolan forces and wage historical actions in order to stop an assault. This was a far cry from the stated aims in 1987, where Cuba, Russia and the Angolans set off to seize the entire southeastern Angolan towns of Mavinga and Jamba from UNITA and were stopped by the South Africans. Put another way, they were defeated. The SADF had achieved the objective of saving UNITA from annihilation and keeping the Cubans, Russians and Angolans fixated on this part of Southern Africa and thus managed to push communism further away from Avambaland and Southwest Africa and of course South Africa until communism collapsed. But it wasn't a victory. The SADF was a very powerful and dangerous scorpion trapped in the bottle with the dangerous and powerful Cubans and Russians and the MPLA. Pretoria bent over backwards saying that because Quito Quanavali was never the objective, the Cuban narrative is wrong. But as I've explained, militarily had the Cubans exited Quito along with FAPLA, it's likely that the SADF would have moved in and then handed over the town to UNITA. Then the SADF would probably have blown up the main bridge to the north near Kahama as well as the other on the Quanavali River and left the Cubans to fight over an area further north. That is highly speculative, but having spoken to a few vets, who are less defensive about who won, what and where, this is probably the route Pretoria would have taken. Hochart and Breitenbach have said this, so too the thinking men in the Rekis. The South Africans did not win this war. The aim of all wars is political, a political solution. Pretoria wanted to keep Namibia as part of its territory and it failed to do so. It lost the territory, but it won a peace that was inevitable. This border war was part of an era where post-colonial regimes were on the ramparts seeking military victories to excite their masses. Dying colonial regimes like apartheid were also doing their best to copy the heroes of the Boer War, outwitting the English or the Cubans with another excellent bit of tactical mobility. There have been a few curious comments by General Yanni Helnehes after the war. For example, he said that Quito Quanavali was not the objective, but if it had fallen into South African hands without a fight, they would have occupied the town. Then he said, but only if they could defend it. That is strange. For most of the Southern Angolan campaign, the SADF had taken towns and handed them over to UNITA and withdrawn. Suddenly, Helnes claims the South Africans would have changed their military logic for one town. We must not forget that this war was fought over Namibia. The people of that country did not want the South Africans to run their country for them, no matter what anyone now believes about how badly or well it has been run since independence. 
I've spent many years before independence and afterwards in Namibia, like many of the listeners. And while a soldier there, I was fully aware that the majority of the locals wanted us out. I was also aware that the SADF was doing a great job in keeping some deadly people out of the territory, people who would murder at the smallest provocation. And yet, as the civilian population became more leery of the SADF, some of the actions taken by the security forces in dealing with the people of Ovumbaland led to a massive vote in favour of Swapu in the upcoming Namibian elections. Gelnes is on record as saying the Cubans opened up the second front at Techipa because they had been stymied in the attack in the east at Quitoquanavali. This was a political decision to save face before heading to New York to negotiate the final peace agreement. That's probably true, but so what? It worked, so pointing out the obvious is hardly winning a war. Gelnes also said that had the Cubans entered southwest Africa, then the South Africans, in his words, would have gone to town. A major war would have broken out, which Pretoria was ready to fight. But he's fooling himself. The South African political order was not willing to let this happen. His people were tired of the body bags. 23 years of fighting? For what? For Namibians, who in the majority did not want the SADF there? He appeared to have forgotten the truth about war. It's politics by other means. It's not a thing unto itself. That is only how a professional soldier thinks, and only tactically, not strategically. I met international operators in places like Onjiva inside Angola, who were veterans of Vietnam, former Green Berets, and special forces. While he drank his beer at Onjiva Airport, beer that had been flown in for his team, I asked one, why do you fight here in Angola as an American? His answer was quite chilling and honest. Because I like to kill, he said. It wasn't his war, but he didn't care. It was war he sought, unlike the majority of the citizen force and national servicemen who supplied most of the manpower to the SEDF in the border war. They fought to survive and to live, but killing people was not their lifelong dream. This former Vietnam vet said he had a PhD in philosophy from one of the universities in California but he also had a penchant for dealing in death that he discovered while fighting in Vietnam. He had a particular skill. The majority of soldiers fighting are not like that. What about the air war? The SA Air Force had been more effective with less than their Cuban and Angolan counterparts. The SA artillery had been better. The bombardments accounting for thousands of casualties, while the Angolan barrages fell way off target. But in the end, the Cubans controlled the air war. The mobility of the SADF in the bush caused endless trouble for FAPLA, and the average FAPLA soldier was less motivated and poorly trained compared to the average South African. All of this is true. Asking who won the border war may be the wrong question, however. Asking why it was fought is what we've tried to do over the past two years. Providing hopefully a detailed description of the motivations by individuals who acted honorably and with dignity and with courage. Most of my brothers... We're surviving on instinct in this war. The ones that survived either the shooting or the mental scarring are now retiring from the other jobs. They're in their 50s and 60s, like me. We need to look at what we have. Some are visiting southern Angola, as 61 Mech and other units do, meeting with Farpla and even Russian vets, cracking open a beer or five, sitting having a braai, overlooking the battlefields. One or two South Africans are now farming in southern Angola. It's a beautiful part of Africa, as we all know. The people are friendly, even those who've lost their legs and landmines planted by South Africans. They appear to hold no overt grudges. 
The Angolan army wants to host more military tourists. These men, who can take a trip back to their past, metaphorically, may also be taking a trip into the future by visiting these zones. The Angolan economy was shattered by civil war, ruined by corruption. The Marxists running the country destroyed it by stealing the oil. The Dos Santos family cursed Angola with its ignominy and greed. The Cubans, well, they have their own demons to deal with post-Castro, barely able to eke out an existence these days, trying to flee to America, which is less than 100 miles away, while the Chinese build military outposts on their island, another one-party state using the Washington Havana belligerents to extend its lifespan artificially. By departing from Angola and other African conflicts, Havana's political mind is refocused on their own backyard. The days of Che Guevara running around trying to sell revolution for a handful of AK-47s to anyone who will buy is over. Finally, just a word. The effect and fallout from this war continues and has spawned an entire tribe of what we call wannabes. These folks pretend they were involved in the war and regale others with lengthy examples of their courage under fire or their involvement in the wreckies or other lies. Just out of interest, South Africans are not the only country suffering from this. The Russians have also complained of a similar group of wannabes who lie about their involvement in Angola, or lack of involvement to be more accurate, some in the US as well. Members of the Russian Veterans Association have exchanged letters with the South African veterans, saying that we have a common history. They have reminded veterans that despite history being written by the winners of a war, both the Russians and the South Africans are in a unique position. There were no losers amongst these two nations. There have been other letters written by the People's Liberation Army of Namibia, or PLAN. Some of the fighters have reached out to SADF veterans and members of SWATIF. One is Fulya Nangolo, a PLAN reconnaissance soldier who was active in the Caprivi and who has said that because he fought South Africans in the same dust, the same sandy terrain, we came to know each other well. Because of this, he says, we have more in common than we have differences. Veterans have visited southern Angola and expressed condolences, atoned if you like, and the sorrow that both sets of families feel after a battle was tragic and intense, remember they were fighting for. There is a call for more familiarization amongst veterans. This has been going on now for some time as 61 MEC and other organizations travel back to the battle zones in southern Angola to meet FAPLA commanders they'd fought against back in the 80s. For South Africa, Namibia, Angola, the conflicts now appear to be raging within rather than between. Next episode, I'll address the Untag handover, which is a bit chaotic, as you'll hear. If you want to contact me, you can head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, Totsins. Mm-hmm.